welcome to Dot Materials. I'm Faye. Hi. And I'm Rachel. Hello. This is usually a podcast where we're reading through and discussing Philip Pullman's His Dot Materials novels, a chapter at a time, spoiler free. But in this very special episode, we are interviewing Russell Dodgson, who is the VFX supervisor on the His Dot Materials TV series. This episode contains spoilers for the Amber Spyglass book and the TV series. So if you've not read or watched both, please come back when you're all caught up. Exciting interview for you, Lucky Ducks. I know, another interview. So many interviews happening and we bloody love it. Yes, yes. We love chatting to Russ. Uh, you hear it in the interview, you'll hear it in the interview, how much we enjoy talking to him, how much we've become like friends over the last three years has been really lovely. Four years, mm-hmm. I guess, almost. Um, and yeah, just... We always have such fun with Russ and he always wants to know what worked and didn't work for us in the series. And yeah, it's just always such a good chat. And he's such an intelligent person that listening to him talk about this series I just love it so much yeah definitely Russ is one of my favorite people to talk to in interviews and if you want the scoop on why we didn't get dragonflies and uh what was the other controversial thing we asked him why the harpies didn't have boobies yeah this is where you'll find those answers because Russ is not afraid to tell us about the process and the decisions that were made and it's really great to hear <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I mean, we won't keep you for very long here. Uh, but yeah, please enjoy the interview with Russell Dodgson, one of our faves. Yes. So hi, Russell. Thank you so much for joining us again. Yeah, thanks so much. Hello, always a pleasure. We're so happy to have you. <laughs> yes, we've had lots of um, lots of people love you. When we put questions out on Twitter and Instagram, everyone's like, oh my God, tell Russell thank you. We love him. So you've got a lot of uh, a lot of fans. That's very sweet. Very sweet. <laughs> completely, misgui- completely misguided, but very sweet. Yeah. <laughs> official so. official friend of the pod. Indeed, yeah. Indeed. It's also, you, you, you guys are like official friends of the show. I was saying, I was saying to someone, I was saying to my wife and my um, sister-in-law last night who's visiting that... Um, it's really like I was doing this podcast and I was saying it's really cool because like since season one, you guys have sort of sort of steadily become more and more kind of ingrained and like you're kind of there when we do all of the premieres and stuff. And it's really cool. It's really like, like every time I see you, I'm like, excellent. Yeah, you know? it's it's bananas. It's so funny because like season one, we were like really like trying to get out there and trying to speak to people. And obviously you were one of the first, if not the first person that we spoke to. And then this time around, we had like emails from Liam and the PR team being like, do you want to speak to Russell this time? And we were like, yeah, of course. But every other time we've been like oh, emailing you. So yeah, it's very strange it's to be. It's lovely. Yeah, it's, really it's great. Good. It's really nice to see. It's really nice to see. Anyway, yeah, thank you for having me back on. You're welcome. Thank yeah, you for coming. Thanks for on. coming. Thanks for your work on the show. And I guess the first big question we have for you is season three, it's done. How are you feeling now that the journey is finished? Like, how are you? How are you doing? Pretty weird. <laughs> Um, it's um, it, it it sort of got a str- you sort of have this sort of strange there's sort of like a cathartic feeling of finishing something like that's the reason why I could never even if like it had been the most horrific experience making I think I would have always wanted to finish the three books because I couldn't handle watching someone else have, having done it so um, so there's there's a real level of kind of 
sort of catharsis and sort of pride in finishing. Uh, but there's definitely like a, a, a gap that when you when you do a show for this long and you've built kind of like a work family, both with like the you know the production team, cast, crew, and all of the guys and girls that I work with um, in post production, yeah, it, it sort of leaves a bit of a void, you know, that you have to sort of like get used to. But that's sort of the way it is, you know. You get these really amazing opportunities, and they're kind of really intense sort of relationship building experiences and creative experiences and then you put them out in the world and everybody goes off to their next one and some of you rejoin and some of you don't and you just have like really great memories but there's always a weird bit just after where it's a bit of a come down but you know luckily I have an amazing family to spend my time with yes absolutely it's funny because I think that the fans kind of feel like that as well now that this season's over and obviously a lot of people have watched it all on iPlayer it's all out on HBO and everyone's like yeah oh, it's, it's done now and it's not coming what back do do now? <laughs> I mean that's when you know you've made something good though you know like I think yeah. there's only ever been like a few TV shows in my life where when they finish like I almost don't want to watch the last episode because I know it's the last one and when it's done you know you're quite, not quite sure what to do with yourself for like like a day or so afterwards because you just sort of you know, I felt that way about like, all of my favorite shows are things like Friday Night Lights and like shows like that. I don't know if you've ever seen that. Um, and um, they definitely, I remember watching that when it finished. I remember me and my wife being like, what, um, what happens after this now? Like, what's yeah. the next bit? You know, so, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. I have a friend that just doesn't watch the last episode of TV shows. It's just yes. like it's too emotional. I can't handle it, and then it's done. That's gonna that's gonna do some emotional damage over time. I can <laughs> yeah. guarantee. <laughs> yeah, on sure. your deathbed, and you're just like, I wonder. I'm wondering how 400 TV shows yeah. finished. Yeah, it's not I, healthy. I have a friend who spoils the last episodes of TV shows despite having not seen them. That's me. I was about to say that felt pointed as a comment. Yeah, yeah, that's me. I spoiled Game of Thrones for Rage, even though I've never seen it before and don't care about Game of Thrones. But I like to know Ouch. how that's... big shows. Do you know, like, because Game of Thrones is so in the zeitgeist that I know the characters and what they are, even though I've yeah. never seen it. So I always look up. I did the same with Breaking Bad. I've never seen it, but I looked up how it ended, and then I thought Rage had seen it. So I well, hang it. on, I don't, I don't know how Breaking Bad ended because I watched the first season, loved it, but actually, for kind of like that's one of the only shows where I watched it, loved it, and was kind of happy, almost with how it the first season finished. Yes, and I was so mm. scared of it getting worse, which apparently gets better, so I will eventually watch it. Yeah, but, don't um, worry, I, I was really spoil kind it. of yeah, you better not. Otherwise, <laughs> I'm out. I wonder how. Uh, his Dark Materials is going to end up in that same zeitgeist where the people, because I remember the bench breaking Twitter and a lot of people will now understand why it did if they didn't the first time when they, when it showed up in season two. So I wonder if any of the, those things are going to end up in the zeitgeist and kind of spoil the books or spoil the show for people because everyone knows that the bench breaks people's hearts. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, you kind of hope that these shows get like a kind of cult following over time and you know, I mean, it's hard for them not to. I think when you've got the book material as well, um, you know, you've got two, you've got two mediums kind of reinforcing each other. So, um, you know, I mean, you know, you hope that it lives on until someone does it again in a decade, and we can all sit back and enjoy it. And I can go, why did they do that? <laughs> yes, I did it so much better. I, mean, <laughs> I, I would I have done it better. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so season three. I guess we'll start with like quite a big question. What was your favourite aspect of season three to work on? Because it's such a huge season compared to the other two. Uh, it's a tricky one, that. Uh, my favourite part of the experience of season three was directing, which was a nice change for me as well. 
Um, my favourite visual effects experience of season three was either Pan Lyra separation or I really enjoyed messing around with the harpies for what we got to do, you know? Yes. But like, I really enjoyed like the new characters of that. Yeah. And then the Malefa mm-hmm. the Malefa are fun. They're a bit less they're slightly less rewarding from a character perspective because they're not quite as sort of fully formed and three-dimensional maybe mm-hmm. as you can do with the harpies in a short space of time. Mm-hmm. Um, but the world of the Malefa and the feel of the Malefa, I really enjoyed doing. But that was also from a directing perspective as well. Well, let's talk about that. We only found out that you directed the Malefa world scenes when we were at the premiere and Francesco was like, did you know, did you know? And then we watched episode five yesterday because we recorded our episode on it and we saw the credits Malefa world scenes directed by Russell Dodgson. So mm. tell us about that. How did that experience come about and how was it? Because they are some great scenes. Every time we're there, we're just like, oh, thank God we're in somewhere nice. Everything else is yeah. horrible. That, and here that, we are. That's just because that's just because Simone like makes you feel like you're at <laughs> yes. home. Yes, she does. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like she's yeah. unbelievable. Um I mean how it came about was the, the thing that's lovely about doing a show over multiple seasons is that you all learn what you each other can do. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody has a job. And everybody's job always kind of slightly, slightly overreaches. You know, if you're a real, if you're a true team, you fill in all the gaps that each other's leaving because you can't always do everything. Um, and that includes the directors when they come in and sort of everybody. Uh, season one, I did all of the sort of helicopter aerial second unit sort of shoots like that. And then I also, I think I picked up one scene in season one, and then season two. I did all the helicopter stuff again. I then picked up a couple of extra scenes with Simone. And then I also shot the last sequence with James McAvoy when he sees the angels for the first time. Um, And by that point, I think everybody had kind of gone, ah, Russell can direct, that's cool. Um, And then season three came around and they just sort of, that sort of just progressed another sort of stage. And I I think in the end on season three, I think I ended up directing about half an hour of stuff. Which is, I, I mean, the main stuff that I ended up shooting. I shot loads of second unit for every episode. Um, but like the main meaty stuff was all of Simone's stuff in episodes five and six. Um, I shot the, um, I did the sequence where James McAvoy meets himself and fights himself. Yes. Um, nice. <laughs> I also did the Mrs. Coulter Spectre, that whole Spectre sequence. Nice. Um, and the, and the Cliff Gast attack. I shot that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I kind of shot half of the sequence where they all fall into the abyss. Um, and then I also strangely seem to keep getting all the scenes where Will meets someone again. So I did the scene where he meets Joe Parry. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did the scene where he reunites with his mum. And then like loads of other bits and bobs around there. So I kind of like had quite a nice range of stuff to shoot. Um and I think but probably like the most cohesive thing was either episode seven, which me and Amit basically, I basically backed Amit up when he was directing his stuff. I backed him up on some of the sort of slightly more um, action based things. And then um, and then, yeah, the Malefa stuff. But I enjoy that a lot. I really like it. It's like the exact opposite of doing visual effects because you make decisions immediately and the result is immediate. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, that I, and I love that. You know, it's the thing I don't like about visual effects is that you're sort of making decisions over time. Mm. So yeah, I'm I'm a bit more instinctual. Did you find that 
knowing and understanding how all the VFX works and how you know you want that to come out in the end was really helpful when you were directing those kinds of scenes. Because oh, yeah. I can yeah. imagine that was really intricate for the Malefa scenes, for example. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think you... I mean, I think I don't think they would. You know, I, I ended up directing non-visual effect sequences because they had trusted me to shoot visual effect sequences, not the other way around. You know, um, and it just sort of expanded. The, um, but yeah, I mean, absolutely. Like the Spectre sequence was shot, it, although it looks incredibly complicated and was, it was shot very much by the seat of the pants because we were. It was you know right towards the end of shooting. It was incredible. Like we had loads of scheduling things going on. The weather was awful. It was freezing cold. And I think you have to be able to sort of go on set and go, right, I can see, I see what it's going to be. And I'm just going to shoot what it's going to be. And, I, and everybody can be kind of confused. And that's fine because we've just got to go. And luckily when I shot that stuff, I shot that with Adam Lyons, who's an awesome DP um, and super collaborative. And then my my best friend since I was childhood, um, Paul O'Callaghan, who's also a DP, he came and did all the camera operating. So between the three of us, you know, there's a bit, there's a real shorthand. Yeah. Um, so we shot we shot super fast on those scenes. And, you know, it's fun. That's great. So there's so many new aspects and characters and locations in season three. It's bananas. There's so much we want to talk to you about. So let's get into the, the like, <laughs> well, let's get into the nitty gritty of it. Let's talk mm -hmm. about, let's do the Malefa first. Let's talk about the Malefa. Okay. Because if you remember when we interviewed you in season one and then again in season two, we were like, what about this Malefa? And you were like, I'm not telling you. And now you can tell us all about the process. <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I wasn't I wasn't telling you because I had no idea. Um, the, <laughs> so fundamentally, there's sort of two aspects to the Malefa that are tricky. One is what they are, like physically. And two is just how you fit that story into the rest of the story. Because like when you, when you read the book, books, I've, and I've said this to you before about smaller moments, you know, like, why didn't you pick up Pan at that moment when you came out of the incident thing? And it's like, well, time is time, and you've got to pick one thing yeah. to focus on in TV. I mean, this is a much larger problem in that Mary sort of, while, while Lyra's story and Will's story is sort of is linear and consistent sort of time-wise, Mary sort of like, in, in sort of in parallel, wanders into a world and spends about six years learning languages and learning how to, like, weave baskets with, with trunked <laughs> animals. You know, yeah. it's the two timelines don't go together. So we had lots of conversations about do we make an entire episode about Mary and the Malefa, but it just kills them. It would just kill everyone else's story so badly mm. and lose momentum, especially because it's so complex. You kind of the story's so complicated. Like everybody says to me, it's a show that when you if you look at your phone for five minutes, you've got to go back. Yeah, because it's it's so like complicated. Um, so you can't go away from the story for a whole episode and just go and have do do an episode that's like gorillas in the mist. It doesn't really work. Um, so, you know, we tried, we, we sort of looked at it in that perspective. We looked at sort of scattering it across the whole season, but it sort of never really fit. Like it didn't fit the flow of episodes. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff in the Malefus story that is beautiful stuff. You know, like the two Alapi are awesome. Um, you know, a lot of the stuff about their kind of civilization is awesome, but it is definitely like secondary information to the overall story of the show. So, you know, like if you, it's, it, that's where adaptation becomes a problem. Mm. It doesn't drive your story forwards. It's just nice texture. Um, so in the end, it was sort of decided that what we needed to do is like distill the essence of that Malefa story down to the way that it supported both Simone's character journey, but then also would bring you back to support the kids in episode eight, which is really its main function. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that was probably like actually in the end, the hardest part 
the design of them really comes down to Joel, and you can really grill him on that. <laughs> um, he did he did some he did a whole bunch of different designs, and you know they always ended up kind of around a similar theme. What he what we ended up doing is or what he ended up doing is what he's really designed is something that's sort of part tapir, which is like you know an animal that exists, and then there's this thing called a calicothere, which is an old prehistoric creature that had longer front legs, short hind legs, which would give you kind of an odd sort of type of movement and kind of more articulate forearms. Um, and it's kind of a bit of a hybrid with there. And, and he really liked the idea of this splash of blue. And the thing with Joel is like he he really thinks of some really cool things that in his mind could get seeded in in the show. But then what happens is sometimes those bits get omitted because of time or the rhythm of the edit. So, for example, the fact that they're blue, that the idea was that that's where they keep rubbing their heads on the trees that are covered in dust. And then the older you get, the more blue you have on you. Oh. You know, so that was that was his logic behind yeah. that. So you have so the younger ones have less blue as you get older, you get more and more rich with that kind of blue stuff. And it's just because, again, it's like another example of the connection with the trees. But we just never had that moment and that time to to tell to tell mm-hmm. that. So Joel's always got extra levels of thought than you than sometimes make it on screen. You know, things like the diamond-shaped trunk, the diamond-shaped body. Like, look, it reads cool in the book. It's one line, <laughs> and that one line will make you not believe the movement of them for the entire show. Yeah, You know, it will just, mm-hmm. like, you know, the, the, what you're supposed to get from the Malefa, I think, is kind of like, there's like this kind of um, sort of like deeply knowledgeable, symbiotic, elegant creature that you're also meant to think is gentle and slightly vulnerable. Right, you've kind of got to feel all these different things about it. So if it was walking around like super weird with like diamond shaped body and no spine or whatever it is, you're probably not going to be thinking about those things, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so I think he, I think Joel came up with a really nice design that kind of was grounded enough that you would just believe it within the world, but that was different enough that you would find them interesting. And then the hard parts with him actually were the eyes, really. Like trying to decide on the, I'm no, and I'm never like that will be something that I'm never sure if we did the right thing or if there was another thing that we could have done. Um, how human you make them, how engaged you make them, or how kind of um, inscrutable you make them by just making them black like cow's eyes. You know, I'm never quite sure whether we did the right thing or the wrong thing. I like it a lot, you know. Um, but yeah, and then the and then one thing that we did is that so once Joel did the designs, Frame Store, um, and I we got this, we got a. I can, I, I'm going to be terrible and forget his job title, but there's this guy called Stuart Samida who basically consults on lots of Hollywood films mm-hmm. because he's basically kind of like an evolutionary biologist, sort of zoologist character, and he knows his sort of prehistoric creatures and creatures incredibly well. So we sort of did this deep dive with him where we showed him what everything should be. And then what he did is he um, basically just broke the malefa down into the anatomy, like how the calicothere would have worked, where the muscles were, where the spine was, where the shoulders would slide around, how the wrists would turn. Mm-hmm. And then and then we spent time with him talking about how it would grip the seed pods as well. Because the, 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 the idea of the spike going through, which is in the book, it's cool, but it didn't quite fit the way we wanted them to interact with them. Mm-hmm. Um, so we kind of ended up with like, a, like two thumbs, basically. So they've kind of got two thumbs that they can grip the ball with and then just roll around on them. And then, um, and then we also went away slightly from the motorbike thing, um, and went more for a kind of skating kind of elegance, which yes. we thought worked better for our design. But then, what we did is there's something that we talked about when we were talking with Stuart about the fact that when animals run, if you watch a cheetah or something run, as they run, their legs sort of 
what is called tracking. Their legs come into line, so they end mm-hmm. up making a, almost a straight line down their body with their legs. And skaters do the same thing. They replace one foot with the next, which sort of starts getting the feeling of a motorbike. like the line. So we sort of thought, actually, if we kind of use that inspiration for how they move and how they wheel around, we'll end up with something that is reminiscent of that without it actually being quite as on the nose as the motorbike vibes. That makes a lot of sense, yeah. They are very graceful. It immediately, I will say, me and Faye, one of the first things we said, we were like, oh, they're like teens on Heelys. <laughs> that's, that's, that's awesome. Um, I quite like the fact that everybody was outraged that there were no wheels when they only saw them for like two seconds in the fourth episode. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, <clears throat> I, was quite, I was quite pleased with that, actually. You'll get your wheels. You'll get your wheels in some shape or other. We know they'll be round in one dimension. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that, um, I mean... I think the design of them and the look of them went down really well. Like everyone was like really pleased with how they looked, and they're so cute. Like the little babies are so cute. Like I think yeah. <laughs> putting the babies in there was just like peak. Yeah. You knew what you were doing. Yeah, it's a gift. That's the gift. <laughs> um, we. Have, I'll tell you one thing is. So the way that we shot that, we shot that. Um, actually, I don't know if Stephen talked about it all, but in deciding that it would be kind of a montage, mm-hmm. sort of like it's sort of like a real time montage. You know that we like. There was no voiceover, mm-hmm. so that it wasn't pure montage, and it was like sort of real time scenes. In but but time was more montage, you know. Yeah. Um. And but we ended up we actually shot a fair amount more than's in there because we were like we just need to find, you know, different things. So we had some things where we just had Mary like sitting out on the planes, like leaning against like like Lyra would do, like leaning against the mm-hmm. towel, just like sketching, you know. Or we had like things of her like doing more science. And we had um, a slightly more, slightly longer version of her uh, finding the spyglass and all that kind of stuff. But the, um, but you know, that's what you do with those things is you kind of overshoot, and then you find you boil it down to its essence, and then that's the the one that feels like you you never get bored, and you always want slightly more is better than being too long. So yeah. yeah, we loved the montage scene. We thought it was really great, especially we did speak to Stephen a little bit about the the language and the subtitles and how the subtitles like fed into our Yeah, he did a great job. He did a great job with that. I mean, like that, that the idea of the way that, that, that sign language, like um, the way the subtitles worked, that, that was a surprise to me when I sort of watched it and I loved it. And I was like, that's very clever. Um, He's really good at that. And, you know, he did a really great job of um, sort of um, architecting the development of the language. And then, you know, me and him did the, the voice record sessions together. Mm-hmm. And you know we were constantly like playing around with the the, the tone and the, the sort of the flow of it to try and find something that was somewhere in the middle between you know human and animal sort of mm-hmm. sounding ish I guess. Um, and you and it's really it's really hard to I'll tell you one thing it's incredibly hard to develop a language that doesn't sound like a language that you know. So you end up going oh the Malefa are Chinese you know <laughs> like it's really hard yeah. not to come up with a language that is reminiscent of something else. Yeah. Um, so I think they, I think Stephen and um, the guys did a really great job of that. Actually. absolutely yeah 100%. in terms of we did have a listener question that kind of feeds back into what you were saying about the malefa's eyes and where you were like unsure kind mm-hmm. of i guess how uncanny it made them if you went too far one way or the other and one of our listener questions uh, was specifically about that line and finding that uh space with the creature design with the demons with how much facial expression you can get into them because we get such expressive scenes especially from Pan, who breaks our heart repeatedly, Good. where we're getting these very clear emotions, but then it's not too human. It's not uncanny. It's not too human, but it's also not purely animal. And I was wondering about how you find that line. That's kind of a, a question that is 
directly related to my favorite part of the of the job so whoever asked that question legend that was from mary <laughs> ashley one of our fa- one of our patrons <laughs> well mary congratulations for a great question um <laughs> the the um the answer to that is that that's the sort of stuff that i am really hot on um i hate and i really kind of hate overly anthropomorphized creatures like for example the fact that we had to do a cat for will's demon like made me shudder mm. um and because i hate any kind of talking cat in anything ever um and it, <laughs> even and it, salem uh yeah I just, well no but but that that's kitschy if it works mm, yeah <laughs> right when you're trying to make something authentic my answer to the question basically is the way that so i'm not an animator but i am very comfortable directing the performance of animation to make sure it gets what the right tone of a show is but i work with animators who are incredibly talented technically and creatively right the way that i view animation is really simple is i just i i, I divide it into three things body head and face and you should do 80% plus of the performance with the body. You should do like, say, say, say it's 80% with the body, then the 15% of it is the, face, is the head, and the last 5% is the face, or the last 2% is the face. Because I think you can get animals to do, you know, like for example, if you have a dog, and a dog backs away and dips its head, you know that it's sort of a bit scared, right? So, so basically you recognize that you do half of the work you've anthropomorphic you, you've given it a human feeling without actually doing anything unnatural mm-hmm. right so you've got to know the cues and the tricks for how animals move and how you can kind of trigger human response you then add in like head accents and those head accents whether it's on dialogue or in between dialogue as reaction again that's something that we're used to we look at each other you know and our head accents all the time so we know what they are and then by the time you've done that, you should be able to look at a shot without doing any facial animation and know what's going on. Mm-hmm. And then you just add the facial animation or the lip sync in and you can do. And, and a lot of the time, what we would do is like when we were doing lip sync, if we weren't reading the lip sync enough, I wouldn't say do more lip sync. I'd say increase the head accent because that will do the job for you without making their mouths start looking over animated. So that's my that's my thing. And I'm just lucky that I work with animators who have a similar sensibility. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. For sure. Okay, so we talked about the Malefa. Let's talk about the Harpies. So, okay, cool. Harpies, very, very different to what we get in the book. Rachel always says no boobies on the BBC. <laughs> mm-hmm. Was it Was it because no boobies on the BBC? Uh, we definitely drew some with boobies at some point. The, um, I t- I t- I, there's a few reasons. So if we're talking about the fact that traditional Harpies are kind of shrewish women half naked and half birds mm-hmm. like and, and and we're basically saying they're the oppressor of all of humanity once dead feels a bit sexist yeah 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 and, yeah it's a bit like why mm. like that was definitely come up with some dude a long time ago yeah you know and jane was I, I mean i don't want to speak for jane and i don't even know if this is categorically true but i seem to remember jane also being like let's not do that you know Fair. um mm-hmm. And for my side, I just sort of wanted to, I mean, I'm really happy as soon as she said that. Like, for me, the thing about the the harpies is they're more interesting if they both, they disgust you, they scare you, you feel sorry for them and you kind of want to give them a cuddle all at the same time. Yeah. Right? <laughs> like, to me, that's what they are. Basically, they're, 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 they're like pawns in the land, of, they're misinformed pawns in the land of the dead whose job it is is to make everybody else's life miserable whilst they are also miserable when there's actually another way. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And that's how I view the harpies. Right? So Joel did um, a bunch of, you know, we went around like, are there going to be people in suits? Are they going to be this? Are they going to be that? Joel did these designs that are really, really cool. 
Um, and then I kind of, the thing I think I bought to it is I sort of made the faces a little bit more turtly because that's what I thought brought in a bit of the sweetness, but then I covered them in like scabies. So they were mm-hmm. disgusting. So, you know, it's sort of, it, it was very much a process of trying to find the character that would give you those feelings. And then the animation wise, because the land of the dead is like this otherworldly space. I kind of wanted to make it like just a touch Ray Harryhausen-y. Like, how give it a slight feeling of when you watched a show in the 80s or the 90s and they were sort of puppets. So we gave them like a bit of a twitchy kind of jankiness, um, but never so much that it felt like a puppet, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then, yeah, I mean, I had a lot of fun with them because, again, they're new, but they also drive story forwards and their, and their personalities mm-hmm. and their characters. I mean, that's the one thing in the show that I think if we had you know when, you know when the budget comes to a crunch you, you you don't want to omit the harpies you don't want to omit the malefa so you end up with not quite as much of certain like the malefa i think is the right amount for the pace of the show yeah and if it was a different pace of show or a different or if we had more episodes yeah sure maybe you could have done something different i think for the rhythm of the show that we made i think the malefa is the right amount but i would have loved to have had two or three more harpy scenes yeah yeah, yeah. but they're, they're they're complicated they're expensive and again like if we did have those scenes, I know we actually did have one other harpy scene. It was short, but we had it, but we cut it because it didn't fit in the episode. Because <laughs> actually, if I said to you, you can have three more harpy scenes, they're all going to be four minutes long. Where do you want to put them? It's quite hard to find the spot if you cut, yeah. if you have to cut something else out. Mm. So, so yeah, anyway, I loved, yeah, I really enjoyed them. And the voice acting was really hard. Like for me, because we were designing a mouth for them that wasn't particularly articulate and couldn't hit a lot of human mouth shapes, um my pitch was let's make it feel like they're talking from their throat and that like because the whole idea is that like they're oppressing everyone from telling stories so i was like why don't we make it seem like talking is painful yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so that's that's why so if you look they've got this kind of really kind of slightly turkeyish neck and when she, yeah. and there's a there's a point a, there's a point when she says true stories are nourishing and she kind of there's a bit as she says it that we put in like this really kind of painful swallow as she says it that hopefully mm. like if not notice sort of flavors the vibe of it yeah um and then when we got the voice actor, they had to really like it was really hard work for them when they were yeah. doing the um the voice, like really painful, you know, hard sessions. They were yeah. a lot of tea, um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I thought I, th- I mean, like for what we did of them, I am really um, happy with what we did with them. I think, yeah. Mm-hmm. What, what did you think? So you can you can slag them off. It's fine. No, no. I think we were talking <laughs> about this yesterday because we recorded our episode where you first see them and i remember we got like a little hint of them in like one of the trailers quite a while ago and i think it makes sense to change them from what they were in the books number one because i just think that it would have i don't know it felt a bit strange if you'd have had them as like a woman kind of the similar vibes to what you said i think i really enjoyed the way that they looked i think i just wish we'd kind of got a little bit more of them my one of my favorite scenes in the amber spyglass so this is just me being selfish is where they like fly around liar uh, lyra and the screaming liar and it sounds like they're saying mm-hmm. lyra but it sounds like liar and all that kind of stuff so i think for me because the story of them in the in the show is quite a bit different to what we get in the books so I think that mm-hmm. I would have liked a little bit more of them. So maybe those scenes that you had to cut for time, like I completely get it. Uh, but I would, I mean, I would like to had, see them at least. <laughs> yeah, we had we had we had a scene that we shot where, and it was brief, where Lyra's kind of in the darkness and she gets a bit lost, and then the harpy's head would would if we had finished it would have come out of the darkness and like whispered at her and then disappeared and then whispered at her and disappeared, which would have been our equivalent of the flying around thing. 
um mm-hmm. but yeah it just like i said it just didn't i mean actually i mean that wasn't a, i was that nothing to do with that choice that would have been a steven question but it, like if i think about where would i have put it in the show I'm not totally sure so mm. yeah that makes yeah. a lot of sense i do think there's a version in my head there's a version of the harpies that definitely your harpies fit perfectly the vibe of the show because of the way you've done all the other creature design they do fit in they fit neatly in the same headspace as the malefa for example mm-hmm. Um, but there's a version of the harpies in my head that fits more perfectly into like a classic like um, Jim Henson creature shop oh, yeah, totally. harpy that exists out there that is part person, part puppet, some really cool special effects makeup. But that fits way more into like an labyrinth or like a yeah. like a, a 90s like fantasy film than it does this series. Um, but it is something I would have loved to see. Yeah. And, you know, like to be honest. To be honest, we you know there is probably a version we could have done where we did a hybrid and we had a mixture of CG and then we took it over in CG when we needed to, and it could have worked as well. I mean that's the thing that's awesome about doing television. Like everybody always feels like it's a bad thing, but what's cool is like you have all these options and you make your choices, and then people look at them and you kind of go, oh maybe next time I'll do something like this or I'll do something like that, or maybe someone else will have a go and they'll do that and it'll be cool. You know, I mean you can't you, you know what's the point? There's no point regretting things. Because, you know, like they're your, they're every, like I always say, it's all done with love and best intent. And like when I look at the Harpies, I know that when I was finishing the shots, I was really happy. And the guys that were doing it were super excited. And, you know, and that is good. So, you know, but I don't I don't disagree with you. I think that, you know, like we had a, we had a thing where we with one of the ideas we had early on between me and Joel was this idea of having the wings kind of cocoon around them. So actually, as they were walking through the land of the dead, there was almost like a giant version of aliens. You had these big kind of feathered pods. And you didn't know what they were, and they were kind of half in the walls and half not, and then they would kind of emerge out. Mm. Yeah, we had all kinds of thoughts about stuff, but it just comes down to the time you have and what script space there is. Yeah, you know? no, I love that though because you get end up with so many different versions. You've got the version in your head, you've got the version that you've been presented with, and then eventually they'll meld down the line a little bit. And yeah, and then there's fan, there's fan art, mm-hmm. and yeah, yeah, awesome. Exactly, that's the fun stuff. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess moving on to another creature design, which is potentially the only take that we have that might be like, hey, hey, Russ, why'd this happen? <laughs> and that is the loss of Tally, of Tally, Tally and Sally, oh, yeah. uh, Talise and Salmakia. We get a lot less Galavespian action. And I can completely understand that that's probably because they are weird little characters that are probably annoying to put in. <laughs> um, but I was wondering if you could talk us through those decisions to like take away our dragonflies and uh, give them fun little backpacks. <laughs> that one's an easy one. That one's an easy one. There's a lot of things. I mean, I'm really personally really fond of the Galavespians. I because I, I I directed all of their stuff, like all of the stuff with the cast, and um, you know, they they were awesome, the two of them, and um, and they're really tricky to do. I mean, basically at the beginning, we had this whole chat about what's what's going to be in the show and what is not, and what are the functions of everything. Like, what is everything's role? So the Galavespians, like really when it came down to it in terms of their role, they were, you know, they're very useful ways of getting information around between spaces and worlds. Really, that's sort of like their main function that we felt that that, that they would bring us. Yeah. As spies, but as like a little spy kind of group. And then I went on this sort of really hardcore deep dive. I watched every little like shrunken person movie that could exist all the way back to like Bride of Frankenstein, right? To get <laughs> in my head what, works and what doesn't because that's the thing like, i don't like those things because i normally think they don't look right mm-hmm. so i was kind of like i had to go on my own like i need to establish what i think works to then present to people so we did 
so I watched all of these films. I kind of like real endless sort of thing. Obviously, all the Ant Man's. There was a uh, downsizing is a good one to watch as well. You know, which is Matt Damon film. Um, and yeah, I watched a whole bunch of stuff, and then also did loads. We like with Brian, we three D printed lots of little characters at different sizes. Because what you have to think about is, if they're a spy, they've got to be small enough that they can sort of hide. But then if you want to do scenes where they're talking to people, you've got to do shots of where they're talking to people, right? So they can't be so small that they're invisible, right? Because that doesn't work. And what we knew we didn't want to do is we knew we didn't want to break our camera language so that you're like normal lens on Daphne, macro lens on a, you know, because it's just feels tricksy. And then you've also got the kind of how big can their voice be and all those sort of questions, right? They've got to pick up, they've got to, they've got to get a hair and pick up a hair. They've got to be able to attack a person and got to be able to see them when they're attacking person in an action sequence. If they're tiny, you've got to go into like Ant-Man mode, which we didn't want to do. Um, so, so once you've answered those questions, you end up with a character that in our world, I think if I remember rightly, was about 15 centimeters tall. 15 centimeters was a, a size where they could still hide behind the objects that are sort of normal. You could see them in a wide shot and you could do a shot of them having a conversation without jumping onto a completely different set of lenses. At which point their dragonfly is like a model aeroplane. <laughs> yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. Fair. Yeah. Fair. So, so then what would have to have happened is it would have been like, okay, we'll keep the dragonflies alive, fine, but it can't be part of the spying stuff, which means they can only walk around. So now they can only move really slowly. Or we have to do scenes where they have to leave the scenes that are important, and we have to do kind of weird sub scenes where they go like into the background and go and meet their dragonflies for fifteen minutes, and then come out again. You know, like it, it, it just didn't really fit with what we wanted to do. Um, or what their their function was and how we wanted to like film them with real people and have them feel like they're in scenes and feel like they're characters and be part of a council where you can still see them mm -hmm. in a two shot with Asriel and um and also the decision you know we didn't want to particularly do take them into the land of the dead because it feels like for us anyway if if you remove the dragonfly which is a nice little story going on in the land of the dead if you remove that it all it really does is kind of like add another character into what is quite a nice lonely mission for the two kids. Mm -hmm. So actually like for us, removing it worked, mm -hmm. I think. I mean, I wasn't really hugely involved in the, I mean, I, uh, was I? I can't remember. Uh, that's a bit of a gray area about the land of the dead. I mean, there, there's also, there was also like things of like the logistics of like the speed because shooting the Galavespian stuff is really slow. Mm. Like what you have to do, I mean, I'll give you give you an example of it. So, okay. so for example, you're going to do a shot of a Galavespian on a table and you want to move the camera so it's not really boring. Um, or even if you want to do a lock-off, you basically have to like work out where they are, work out where the focus is. You have to work out the, you have to measure all the eye lines for all the actors. Then you have to do a sort of like a LiDAR 3D scan of the set. You then have to take that, before you can then shoot the person, you have to take that away rebuild the scene in 3d scale it all up to the right size work out the new eye lines and the new angles to everybody then you have to work out how you're going to shoot 20 of or 30 of those shots in a day really fast remembering that if you do a camera shot that's high looking down at them say for example there's someone standing up on a table and you do a shot looking down at them and say the camera was only i don't know a, say the camera's a meter high off the floor mm -hmm. you've now got to make a camera 10 10 20 whatever meters high off the floor because you've got to scale it up by a massive factor so now you need a crane to get the camera in the right angle to shoot a person just standing on a table yeah so it's really complicated and really time consuming um so 
so that's another thing another another thing to take into account is you then have to have a whole second unit of filming happening just to shoot the Galavespians to put them into the scene so they've really got to be earning their time on screen yeah um and then a big part of it as well i mean and lots of like love to caroline for this is when i watched the when i did my deep dive of shows that have done it before the one thing that i think makes it not work is when people have recognizable clothing in terms of like oh they've got a really small belt and <laughs> tiny pockets <laughs> yeah because like, if you come from a world where things are really tiny you're not making really tiny fiddly things in the same way i don't think i think you're i think everything's simpler because of just like materials and the way mm-hmm. materials sort of function um unless you want to go off and say like they've got some own their own material that holds together at like a tiny size so you know like we did stuff like caroline like did very minimal like we picked leather and pla- and sort of more kind of plastic things because they had they were very low in texture mm-hmm. so you didn't see like weird sort of didn't look like they just cut it out of someone else's trousers um yeah and then you couldn't see a lot of stitching we really simplified like the pores and the hair on their face we like the, to the point where we even lost their eyebrows so you didn't have tiny little eyebrows mm-hmm. and we made their hair like almost plasticky so that you didn't really get a sense of you know, like I mean, I went. You know, this is the stuff that you have to do as a supervisor. I went downstairs and like got all of my kids' dolls, and I was like, "Oh, it's weird. Like their hair doesn't actually like hang because it's not heavy enough. It just sort of stays in the air." Yeah. And that and that tells me that they're small and light. And if their hair's got weight and is bouncing, I now think they're the size of a full size person. Mm-hmm. So you know, all of those decisions you kind of take into account to get to where you got. My friend Rob actually pointed out the one that we couldn't do, where he said, "If you were that small, you know, like when you hold a torch against your finger, you can see the light through it." Yeah. They were like, he was like, if you're that small and you're standing in the sun, you just see their bones. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> and I was like... Well, that's horrifying. <laughs> and the thing is, is actually we did some weird tests of like basically subsurface, like light transporting through people and through skin. And it did make it way more convincingly small. Mm. But it would have looked really weird and they'd have had to be CG all the time. Yeah. So we didn't do that. <laughs> um, but anyway, does that sort of answer the question and make a loose amount of sense? It does. Very much It does very, very well. There you go. One of the things that we've spoken to you, this question is twofold, actually. So one of the questions that we've spoken to you loads of times before is your involvement in Mrs. Coulter's story arc and the monkey. Mm -hmm. And in this season, we get some lovely scenes with with those two, which is feels strange to say because obviously we've only seen them be so mean to each other, but we do get some really lovely scenes between them. So first of all, I wanted to ask what it was like working on that story arc this season. And then secondly, we saw in an article somewhere, I can't remember where it was, so this is going to be very vague, that Ruth said that the monkey spoke in the season. And then I saw, and again, I can't remember who, it might have been Jane, it might have been someone else, they quote tweeted it and said, the monkey did speak, but we cut it out. So I want to see if you know anything about that and what the monkey said and when it was supposed to be. <laughs> and if he spoke, <gasps> who is his voice? <laughs> Brian, blessed. Um, I um, I I can answer some of those questions and okay. I disappoint you on others. Okay. Uh, in terms of involvement, um, it was sort of similar to the other seasons, you know, like Ruth and the writers um are the very much the driving force behind that character arc you know she is so invested in it and loves it and all the writers are so invested in that and love it. it's one of the biggest differences i think from the book tonally to the show is the amount of mrs coulter development mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. yeah. and and i think it's the best change between the two um the like you know it's i mean like, it, it's sort of i mean the answer is pretty simple it's very similar to how we've done things before um 
and in terms of you know brian did his usual incredible job of working with ruth and you know they found some really great scenes and moments together um and then you know we as always we you know sometimes the edit changes the tone sometimes it doesn't sometimes we follow the puppeteering exactly sometimes we change it completely and sometimes we're sort of in the middle it's sort of both influence each other um but it would not be it, yeah, without brian and what that what her, what brian and ruth do it would be impossible to make that connection it's that that makes it work and then we just sort of tap into that and and, and sort of enhance the moment i mean one of my favorite scenes i think i've ever done on the show is just is the one where she apologizes to the monkey and yeah. that animation in that sequence is some of the best animation I think we've done. And it's also the smallest amount, the smallest animation we've done in terms of like, the monkey does hardly anything, but he just does the right stuff to yeah. make it work, you know? Um, and that, like, I remember watching that scene and I was like, you know, first time I watched it, I sort of got a bit teary when when I was going through it with the guys. And then, um, and then it's the scene that I think if someone said to me, like, show me what makes Dark Materials unique as a show, I wouldn't do any of the big battle stuff, any of that. I'd show, a sh- I'd, like, I'd probably show a scene like that. Yeah. 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 So that was sort of um, in terms of, so my involvement was pretty traditional. Like, we all kind of have continued to work the same way. Um, Ruth brings like some crazy performance. Brian does an amazing job working with her and helping come up with stuff. And then, and then me and the animators, we do a really nice job of flavoring that afterwards. I think that's basically the, the thing as for the monkey speaking i can't remember actually because no. it's a blur i wasn't on set I, I was not on set that day so i can't remember um uh but i do know that i if it was like if it was up to me and i can't remember if i ever put my voice in the ring on it because like i said production is mental mm-hmm. um i would vote for not having the monkey speak every time yeah like I do not want to. I don't care what he can say. I don't care what his voice is. I, 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 the, 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 the mute, emotionally stilted monkey is the one of the best kind of animated characters ever on TV, in my perspective. Yeah. And putting a voice to it and like you know whatever voice you pick is going to be wrong for ninety percent of the people. Yeah. No, we felt the you same. Know? We were like, no, yeah. unless it, unless it had Ruth's voice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> imagine I, know. I think the only thing i could even imagine the monkey doing would be like a, a scream that sounded like speaking yeah. like if he shouted no but it was more of a scream than a than a shout mm. and you know but even then that's i think that's something they do in planet of the apes but in even the book then, i don't know <laughs> in the book it's kind of a bit of a meaningless line isn't it i can't remember oh, yeah it's like phil just forgot that he didn't speak and he was like, just had the monkey ask Coulter a question isn't while they it, were like walking through a corridor. Isn't it very much a look over there moment from the monkey in the book? Yeah, I can't like, remember. Oh, what's that? It's like one throwaway I mean. line. What, yeah. That's what I mean. So like with, with the amount, if like maybe in the book that kind of is okay, but with the amount of investment we've made in Coulter and the monkey, like I, I challenge you to pick the moment when the monkey speaks where it's no. weird Mm-mm. or wrong, mm. you know? No. I, so, I, yeah. Unless yeah. it's when he's disintegrating into Lyra, he's like, bah. He's out. <laughs> Uh, it just adds some levity to the moment. I've, I've always thought—I don't know if I've said it before—but if, if, if it was ever going to happen, I just love it if at the end the monkey's a total idiot, and as he's dissolving, he's like, "Who are you?" And then like, dissolves, like he never knew who Lyra was. Doesn't really know what's going on. Just, just confused bit, the whole time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that's what—that's the route that I'd go. Um, I, lo- I love oh. the. Um, I do really love the. How did you guys feel about the whole? abyss death scene i don't know if that's on your list it is on the list so we can talk about it now but oh my god it's so we loved it it, the whole thing was so So great yeah from i mean from like you you touched on it earlier from asriel fighting himself to 
like Ruth scene where she's like really, you know, getting like using her best ability to like push all the goodness down in her so so that even that Metatron doesn't doesn't catch on is so great. And then the fall, oh, it's just it was just incredible. We love seven. I'm gonna be totally honest, F seven utterly scared the crap out of me. Mm. Like not as in not before, but as in knowing if we'd done it right. Because okay. it was so hard it's so hard to do and you're so in it that you sort of can't see the wood for the trees anymore, you know? Yeah. And then you just hope that you've sort of nailed it. Mm-hmm. It is the weirdest episode, yes. I think, to get your head around. Yeah. I mean like it's asking mental. you to accept so much. Yeah. yeah. It's utterly like mental and it's such a leap so quickly. It's like Azra was giving a speech and then suddenly there's like a cloud with a thing in it and, a, you know, and it all goes mm. mental. Um, yeah. And there's always questions. Like, you know, I saw someone online the other day was just like, where was Yorick? And where's, where was Yorick in the battle? And my question is like, who's he fighting? I mean, <laughs> I'm very shaky on what happens in that battle, to be honest. Like, it, like, I think in the book, the Magisterium turn up. Why did they turn up? In, in the book, we get uh, the big... Uh, fight scene between the ghosts and the spectres which we don't get in the series yeah so that that didn't happen and I, and that ha- didn't happen for a number of reasons one i think the main reason why was like you want to have the ghost story have a sense of closure mm-hmm. at the end of an episode yeah like the ghost story is about lyra's release of and it's kind of a bit weird where you've got like half the ghosts like turned to dust and the other half like hang on i'm gonna stay around for a bit and fight those guys over there yeah, i'm just gonna squeeze and hold together <laughs> it's a bit kind of a mix someone actually uh, um dan may who um also works on the show he said one of the funniest things uh, i will never forget it he said the risk of the specters fighting the ghosts is that it could look like fart versus smoothie <laughs> <laughs> which is like yeah i thought it was brilliant and also yeah. the other thing as well is like it's really hard not to end up just doing that bit from lord of the rings where a bunch of like ghostly things go and like fight some stuff yeah and like, i didn't really want to do like a bunch of human ghosts like flying the specters fly I don't know. And it doesn't make any sense. Like, to me, it doesn't make any sense why the spectres aren't controlled by Mrs. Coulter when you've done that whole thing in the book before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And she's there. It's sort of like, it, like, none of it sort of made sense. So the spectre ghost thing was quite an easy thing to change, I think. Um, and then, um, and then, like, yeah, like the Magisterium turn up in the battle, but you've ended the Magisterium story with the bomb. Mm-hmm. And it's not like metatron wastes his time with the magisterium because if he did and he was talking with father mcphail that would give everything that father mcphail was doing way more credibility yes right so so that so that doesn't make sense so then like who are the humans now that yorick is fighting mm. right because you're fighting ain't you know like is he going to fight some angels that's a bit of a weird scene now i mean like is it i don't know um so so yeah there were and then so you kind of, we were kind of like, and, and really, if you we were all kind of honest, like the big battle, the whole point of the big battle is it all ends up being a bit of a backstory to like a distraction for everything else that's going on in the story. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, it, it's 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 tricky. So really what you try and do is you try and just make an episode that's got some excitement in it and got some peaks and and really you're trying to make sure that in the end you do the Mrs. Coulter Asriel Metatron story in a kind of interesting way. Um so so yeah so in terms of the omission of certain things when you actually try and logic it on screen i mean we're already trying to deal with like how, where did pan and kajava come from where have they been yeah they've been in the, Baha- the bahamas for a week while the <laughs> others doing the land of dead like i don't know you know so um we're already trying to deal with like disconnects like that already so then like yorick turning up and this it also felt really good like leaving yorick with the the james mcavoy scene which isn't yes. in the books but was so good 
Great scene. Great scene. You know? Yeah. Any scene where someone tells Asriel that he's being a prick and that he needs to appreciate Lyra more is a good scene. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 100%. And any time you put good actors in a scene with Yorick, you get something cool, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, th- so the reason why it's scary is because, like, you know, you know that everybody's expecting this massive battle, but really you're worried that they haven't quite got mm-hmm. the point that the battle isn't the point. Yeah. So they're expecting mm-hmm. something that they they'd watch in like some Game of Thrones or you know, something that's all about the battle, which it's mm-hmm. just not in the story. And there's no space in the episode for it to be all about the battle. So then, like, and then like the kids' journey is difficult, you know, which is why we introduced the cliff gas just to give some jeopardy and some extra bits. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the whole thing with you know, and then you have to work out actual geography. Like, if you actually write down the geography in the book, it's very hard to pinpoint, and it's not like it matters in the book. Mm. It's not the point, you know. And um, whereas for us, we have to establish geography. You know, like, where is the abyss? They're, oh, they're in the Clouded Mountain, but they've got to somehow fall out of the Clouded Mountain into the abyss. So now the abyss has to be underneath the Clouded Mountain. Yes. You know? Yeah, yeah. But it also needs to be kind of be close enough to Asriel's sort of camp and fortress to pose some kind of threat and be present. And how big should that abyss be? And also in the world exactly. of the dead. And, and, but, you know, <laughs> and so that's kind of the point. And it's always, so you have to start, you have to pick how big an abyss is. Like how big is the abyss? Mm-hmm. Is it like endless? Is it not? Uh, yeah. Um, so, you know, they're all really tricky sort of decisions that you have to make and they have to fit within like you know your show's world kind of view geographically and sort of i guess in terms of tone um and then like what should the inside of the clouded mountain be you know joel's really funny to work with i talked to someone else about this the other day because you say to joel like should we should metatron have a chair and he's like why would he have a chair (laughs) yeah fair enough i mean and it's like, it's like sure. what, what what architectural details should it have? And it's like, well, you know, you're picking a bit of architecture from an era. Why would it be Georgian or Edwardian? Like, what are we doing? You know, like, what would it be? Like, really, the whole point is, is he's just showing off, like, a big, large space to Mrs. Coulter. You know? Um, so, so, yeah, that's all of that stuff is really complicated to do. And that's what I mean. That, there's so many variables in that episode that by the time you've finished it, you're not quite sure whether or not it's all the right stuff or not, but you think it is. Um, and and yeah, and like Mrs. Cool to like battling the spectres, you know, there were so many different versions of how that ended or could have ended. Um, you know, like there was a version that I quite liked where Alarbus, the sort of invented angel that's in the earlier episodes kind of comes in and lands and the spectres kind of come out from behind, like come with him and he's in the, and he's involved in it. And there's lots of different ways. And Mrs. Cool could have set the spectres back on the angels and, yeah but that's the one that after lots of conversations that you know the writers picked and we did you know but yeah it's a tricky episode yeah i think with it being so chaotic everywhere else you as a watcher you kind of grasp onto the thread that makes the most sense and that is lyra and will and whatever they're doing through Mm -hmm. the chaos so that works really nicely and then obviously the amazing scenes with Asriel versus Asriel and uh, or Asriel versus Metatron and uh, Mrs. Coulter with Metatron like are the things that pull it together with the, all the chaos around it. Um, you were saying you directed the Asriel v. Asriel yeah. moment. How how was that? What does how does one make James McAvoy choke himself? <laughs> uh, we I mean we did a um we the, you know the guys said they wanted him to face off and they wanted him to have a fight. And then they said, can I do that? And I sort of said, yes, sure. Um, and uh, <laughs> and then you, um, yeah, I mean, to, to be honest, that stuff, that's actually stuff that I find quite, comes kind of quite naturally. I mean, like the fighting stuff comes quite naturally because when I grew up, I did loads of martial arts and I can kind of picture that quite easily. So I, I, I find it quite easy to work with stuntmen and sort of choreograph a sequence and 
and James is really funny. Like you say, to, like he's, he's awesome. You say to James, like, do you want to rehearse it? And he's like, no, nah, I think I got it. And he just turns up in the day, learns it in five minutes, does it, does a really good job. <laughs> he did. There, there was no like two days of stunt rehearsal. He just sort of did it on the day, and he did it really well. The um, I think I think with those things, I mean, the way that I view scenes like that is you is is your you, you have to pick the moments. So for, so the moments are he reveals himself you know he turns up becomes visible he sees himself then disappears that's a moment so you you cling on that moment straight away there's the point when he first hits him there's the point when he sort of picks him up and sort of talks to him and then you know throws him you kind of go right they're the they're the they're the gags that i want to do to sell the fact that there's two of them so you pick the points where you're going to sell that and then everything else you can just do with two two stuntmen no, with the stuntman and, and James, then you switch them over and you just do good. You put the camera work in the right place. There's some frames where you do a face replacement on the stuntman so it looks more like James. But then, but then you you know where your gags are and and you make sure they're 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 positioned right so that people believe that all the other stuff works. And that's kind of the the way you get through those sort of scenes. Um, and yeah, like I was, I mean, I'm very sort of appreciative of James because you know, like the VFX supervisor directing, you know, a list James McAvoy is you know he could have just ripped me a new one for fun <laughs> but he's just not that kind of guy you know so he was he was um he was awesome to work with and you know like i think we he knows his character so well he doesn't really need directing like my role in that is to tell him where we're putting the camera how we're going to film it how we're going to shoot it and whether or not wh- whether or not i think what is happening on camera is looking good or not but he knows his performance you know he's he's, he's he comes in like and he and he plays it so well that you know, my job is just to kind of you know maybe f- help him find a few little bits, and 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 shepherd the day, you know, like direct the whole team rather than like say James, you know, this is how you should say this stuff because he doesn't need that stuff. He's good. Um, mm. So, so yeah, but I really enjoyed it. I mean, we shot that over, I want to say two or one and a half days, something like that. Um, shot very quick. Like he shoot, he likes to shoot very fast, and it's sort of fun. Makes it fun. Um, again, great team to work with, and yeah, it was good. So that was fun, and then the um, and then the inside of the Cloud of Mountain, like the Mrs. Coulter side of that, was I mean, designing the inside of the Cloud of Mountain is really hard. Like that's sort of like up there with the I'm not, you know, like we, you know, like you just do some stuff, you kind of try like fifty different things, then you pick one, and then you keep working on it until you run out of time, and then you kind of go cool. <laughs> um, so um, yeah, that's really tricky. Like that was you know when you're doing something where you've got three actors standing on a white bit of floor and everything else is green you're like okay you know so as i said you know and you and you're expecting an audience to take a leap from all of the other real stuff they've seen to that um yeah it's complicated um but also a fun challenge and um you know and again i think i think in the end i mean the performances are so good that you don't even really care about what's going on anywhere else (laughs) you know alex alex hassel was a great metatron um, you know, Ruth is Ruth, James is James. You put all of those guys on screen together with that material, and you intercut it with what with all the other stuff that's going on, and it just sort of does the job. You could have put like a kids painting in the background; it probably work. <laughs> um, and then, and then, and I think the really fun stuff was when we were working out how to make them fall. Yes. Mm-hmm. And 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 we were talking about that, and I was just, and I remember being in a meeting, and I sort of said, I don't think we should ever fall with them in real time. And I was like, can I do a thing where like we do some hyper slow-mo weird shots? And then everyone was like, oh, I quite like that. And we ended up getting this thing called a bolt rig, which is basically like the movie equivalent of the cameras that paint, no, no the, of the robots that paint cars and put cars together. They like move like super fast. Um, and we got mm-hmm. one of them and we rigged that up. And it was on Ruth and Jane, no, Ruth, I think it was Ruth and James's last days of shooting. 
and, and I sort of spent the day and, and um, my friend Grant, who was also working on the show, we sort of spent the day just setting up this really elaborate rig that can move like rap, like so fast, but in like under a second. And the sort of thing that if you're in the way of it would just like take your head off, you know? <laughs> um, and we sort of rigged this thing up mm. and sort of plotted it out with stand-ins. And then James and Ruth were like filming on the other set and they ran quite late on the other set. So they, they were actually filming the scene just, you know, up to the point when they fall off. And then they dashed across and I was like, right, guys, you're going to lie there, lie there, ready, go. And we just ran the camera around and we did like two takes of each one. That was all the time we had. Wow. Um, and they just happened to come out really, really well. They did. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I, think that, I think that those shots really helped the rhythm of that sequence. Like if that had been them falling in real time and everything's like flapping away and it's like, I think it would have sucked. But yeah. it added like an like a level of like elegance to it all. I think it's a really like poetic moment in the books, and I think you really did it justice. Like it's very beautiful um, in the mm. way that it's happening. That yeah, I think it was the perfect. Yeah, choice. I think. Well, I think. I, th- I sort of think it. Yeah, it worked well, and then yeah, and all the stuff of Stel Maria running in and jumping and all of that stuff. I just, I don't know. I just think like that that stuff came together like really really well in the end. Yeah, uh, and, and I guess actually when I think about the worry of it, I knew that like all of the se- the scenes were strong. All the sequences were strong. It was whether or not as an episode it would feel right. Mm. And in the end, like I think people's reactions have been like, it's a really, really good episode. Made them cry, kept them interested, you know, like told the story. So, yeah, I, there's quite a lot of, um, it's a bit of a breath out really when that came out and everyone was like, oh, it was really good. Yeah, yeah, so, for yeah. sure. There's another big moment in season three that we haven't talked about yet, and that is Lyra and Pan and their separation. So Rachel and I have talked a lot about how the, I think the way that they separate is very fearful to the books. The conversations that they have before they separate is very different in terms of we don't have Pan, as we call him, being a big, brave boy. We have him, we have some anger, we have some tension between the two of them. And yeah, we'd love to know about, I guess, the decision, because that kind of, for us, that kind of makes us think of the secret Commonwealth and their, you know, their fractured relationship in that book. And we wondered whether you mm-hmm. guys drew on that and brought it back into... Oh, I mean, I think, for sh- I think for sure they would have drawn, drawn on the secret Commonwealth. But I also think, um, again, in the context of our show, I think having Pan be the way that he is in that scene is more dramatically interesting relative to what we've done before. Yeah. You know, with, you know, because it's, I mean, it's interesting. It's a bit like, it's a bit like finding Mrs. Coulter when you make the show. Like Ruth turns up and you're like, whoa, we've got all of this stuff we can do, you know? And I think with Pan as well and the way that Daphne works with um, like Pan as a, as a character. And I think that with what we've done with Pan, you know, like even down to the, the scene, which isn't in the book in season two, where Pan attacks Mrs. Coulter's demon. Yeah. You know, but that's that's not in the book. That adds a, a level of darkness to Daphne in a kind of almost like, you know, she's got a bit of the dark side in her kind of thing. Yeah. And I think that and I think having Pan be at odds with Lyra and almost like, how could you even think that this is a thing? You know, how could you think like, hey, yeah, we've got this far. I assume we're not going to separate. How could you possibly think yeah. that that is, you know, and I think that's I think I, I just think it's it's it just adds, I think, um, more drama. And I think it's just more interesting and more nuanced and, and and I think more interesting to play than just sort of having a kind of a like a, a sad animal that's on the same side or yeah. demon that's on the same side. Do you know what I mean? I think I, for me, it's more interesting anyway, and I'm really pleased that they did that. And it gave us a lot to work with uh, in animation. And And so Charles Martin, who directed that episode, I think he did a really, really good job of, I mean, that's a, that's a hard, like if you, if you look at the space that was designed, 
which I really liked, which was this kind of long jetty. Mm-hmm. But then you think about how you separate out that sequence into two conversations and bounce back and forth between them. I think he did a really good job of like separate, like the blocking of that scene, I think works really well. Yeah. And they use the space really well. And then, um, and I think then in edit, in, in edit, Stephen and the editors did a really good job of finding like a rhythm and finding the right time to cut away and the right time to go back. Um, I mean, I mean, you know, like I, I showed my wife that scene when it was a bunch of puppets and like weird drawings and she already cried. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so I think that, you know, I, I, I mean, from my side, like if that works, you know, all we can do is like either make it better or somehow completely mess it up in visual effects. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I mean, did you like, did you like the change? Yes. Yes. I think so. Yeah. Well, now I've had my heart broken in two different flavors, basically. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, but I really love the choice to have Pan in his final form, in his settled form, as she is being separated from him and not have... I think Philip Pullman describes him as like something like a just a sad little creature. It's a sad yeah. puppy. It's like kind of like a puppy, but is it? We don't know. And it just becomes so pathetic. But having him as that Pine Martin is beautiful. The other thing to remember, and it's something that I think a lot of, I think is easily missed when you try and compare it to the books, is that like Amir and Daphne aren't kids. Mm-hmm. They're not like a little girl and her puppy demon. Yes. Right? She's, she's like a young woman who has experienced like a huge amount of tragedy, right? Yeah. She's going to have like a dark side. She's getting close to the point where she is going to settle and she is going to find out who she is. So like, it makes sense for Pan to be that form. Yeah. And it makes, you know, and, and I, it's almost like, I quite like the idea that that's almost kind of the precursor to it being decided that that's what the form is going to be. Yes. Like, I like that. Yeah. Like Pan instinctively becomes that in that moment and st- and then and then, you know, eventually never changes again, really. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, it, like if it had been just like a sad puppy with like with Daphne at the age and maturity that she is, and the way she's kind of played that role, I don't think it would have fit anyway. So yeah, yeah it's it's mm. more in line with the show that we made, you know. Um, but yeah, I liked it. I liked it a lot. In fact, the director, like Charles, emailed me yesterday because he just watched it and he was like, "It's one of the things he's most proud of that he's ever done." Oh, that's great. So that was yeah, like to me, that's like the the you know you know I love that guy, and I think like him saying that was really like made me go excellent yeah you know Mm -hmm. yeah okay this might not be super speedy but dust and the spyglass what what we thinking what we thinking about that can you tell us a little bit about those two things that we see what are you thinking about that there's a reason why you asked me that question (laughs) it plays such an important role in this season like understanding more about what it what dust is what dust wants Mm -hmm. and we see it visualized especially around the malefa and mary's discovery of it in a kind of a new way this season Mm -hmm. Um, as compared to before where we've just seen demons disintegrating or like some stuff with lenses and computers and things. So like I was wondering about that process yeah. of uh, really seeing dust this season. Uh, yeah. Okay. So um, Spyglass decision uh, not to have it be a made thing, but a found thing. Um, that was very much a, a Joel um, uh, thing. Um, there's something quite natural about it that I like. Mm-hmm. To the idea of her like making a, like a small telescope out of bamboo might also have felt a bit sort of naff. Um, so, you know, anyway. Um, and then the, and the, the, I think the, and then the dust vision, as we called it, I mean, really what we did is we, you know, what we, we looked at is we looked at the way that the dust moves around the demons and we said, right, what if we were to see this kind of everywhere and sort of maintain the idea that it's got a bit of a focus. So the idea that it's sort of attracted to these sort of sentient creatures there. So it was on the trees 
it was on the Malefa. We also had a little bit of it kind of connected between the two floating around and the idea that it's sort of um, drifting in the air. I think the hardest thing to land with dust is this idea of, like the clearest thing, if it had been this way in the books, would have been, you know, all of the oppression across the world is making the flow of dust stop. And then when the kids kiss, it all starts again, right? That would have been like so simple. But instead, it's kind of like the dust is leaving the world from the Malefaland. It's like, what does that look like? And like, how do you make that make sense in the story? But we're trying to be as truthful to the main points of the book as we can, you know, where we can. So, yeah, like having, you know, we kind of, and then the abyss is pulling dust down, but the trees that it's all about it floating up and off. Yes. So is there like an abyss in the sky? Yeah, so it's, it's sort of very hard to kind of work out like what all those things are. We had conversations about, do we put an actual physical abyss in Mary's world? But then that would have really had to change the way that the eighth episode works, you know? Um, so in the end, yeah, in the end, I think visualizing it, we just tried lots of different things and then sort of just found like a level that didn't feel too fairy dust-like and felt a bit other and made the, and made the lens very distorted. So it felt like you were looking through kind of stuff like oil and things like that. I, I, like, do I think that it's super clear about dust leaving the world and that story? Probably not. I think it probably could have taken a bit more time to really nail that. Um, but that's a pretty high concept thing to nail anyway. For sure. Um, yeah. So, yeah. That. I, I, yeah. If I say, if I say, could we have done more to nail it? Maybe. I don't know where we'd have fit it, and I don't know what that would have been. I think but. dust is so difficult though because I don't think I still. Every time I think I've got a grasp on it, I'm like, do I really know what it is? And and in the story, like, do I like? If you tell me, I'd be like, yes. But if you ask me, I'd be like, it's... yeah. I mean, my 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 stock answer for my view that I think, but I don't know if it's going to be contradicted in the Secret Commonwealth by the time you get to the end of it. Mm. Is fundamentally that it is just like what makes you human. It's mm. like your free will. It's your sort of spirituality and it's yeah. your connectivity to the to, to to everything, right? Which is to do with free will and curiosity and 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 it's sort of the the simplest way of like connecting that to what the magisterium and all of these oppressive people are, oppressive forces are doing is they're just trying to crush like trying to make everybody like a lonely island right and it's and it's about the fight against that yeah and to me that is the simplest way that i can view dust because if i start going like is everything made of dust in the end or is yeah. everything not made of you know like I, like to me that's a whole other show to talk about that <laughs> In the second book, it announces that it's angels, but then angels are very definitely not the same as dust <laughs> by the time you get to the third book. Exactly, so. <laughs> you know, and, and, yeah, and again, like the angels in this in a similar vein are so hard to visualise, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. you know, for the same thing. Like, you know, the way they're describing the book is this kind of thing you can barely see. You know, it's not the easiest thing to translate to a dialogue sequence. Yeah. That takes, that, that lasts. And if you want to give, and, you, and if you want to make those two characters of Brooke and Balfamers fall in love and you want to care about them, you want to see them as, characters but then you don't want to have two cgi angels you know having a loving relationship because it's sort of you want it to be people you want it to feel like you know it could be you you know i think so i think again decisions to make angels cg when and where tricky really tricky and then actually making angels that you kind of go yeah that's it again the angels were one of those things where we just did so many versions of them and then we kind of slowly honed it to a place and then we sort of and then we, it was just it was just time to deliver and we were all kind of like yeah we think that's it yeah and then like it's really up to the fans because you've already you know you've looked at it too much you know <laughs> yeah i think one of my favorite little moments with the angels is when we very very first see them 
going from their sparkly form to their solid form and you see the wings drop mm -hmm. and the costume kind of drops and how it the drapes and the wings integrate into each that was lovely that was good. i appreciate that that was a lot. good that was actually uh, the visual effects supervisor in uh, montreal this guy called damien that was his his idea and it worked really well it did it. It. it was lovely good good job and and just when they kiss and it's sparkly yeah. <laughs> i think the gays appreciate you for that yeah but that that for that for example like i I, I couldn't think of a harder day directing than like I have to sell what angels are. I have to do two angels kissing with a teenage boy watching and not make it weird. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah, what's yeah. what yeah, like and I think I think I think I think um Amit did a really and Amir did a really, really great job of that scene because there's never a point where I think that Will has either a negative reaction to it, like a weirded out reaction. It all just feels very natural and very sweet. And I think they directed that in a really, really brilliant and tender way because mm -hmm. it could have gone sideways so many yeah. ways that because it's like, it's sort of like, you know, it's like, if I, it's like watching your parents kiss. It's like, yeah. that's a weird, you're like, what's going I, on? I, yeah, yeah. I mentioned that in, in our episode because that we did on that episode because I was like, I love the scene where they kiss and Will just has this moment where like, it pans to like Will or like uh, we see the mm -hmm. like camera focus on Will and he's just a little bit like, and he like looks away and it's exactly the way you'd expect that moment to happen because you see like a tenderness in him that he's like, he sees the love between them, but he's also like, I want to give them a private moment here. And yeah, just yeah but it also, but, but, but it also seems like, and I think this is where Amir did such a great job, is that it also seems like he's he's got loads of shit going on. Right. And that doesn't fall away. And it's not suddenly about like, I'm in this weird, awkward moment. Like all that stuff feels like it's there. And this is just another thing that's happening. Yeah. And it just, I don't know. It just, I just thought, I thought they just nailed it. And like, that's a hard thing to get right. I think tonally. Yeah. You know, and I think they did a really good job. Basically. I'm going to give them both a high yeah. five when I see them next. Um, <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> so we are kind of coming to the end of our time and we are come to the end of the third season. So what better time to ask for your top three moments that are your favourite things to have either watched, been a part of making, or, well, I want your top three monkey moments, <laughs> just for one, of, of across the entire three seasons. And then your top three moments overall to have worked on and then your top three moments generally. Oh my God, so okay, many moments. Wow, that's... So that's nine whole moments. Nine things. Okay, <laughs> favourite monkey moments. Number one is the apology sequence at the top, without a doubt. Number two is the bit after the, in season one, the bit after the monkey attacks Pan, when he's just sort of sitting there. It's a very gentle, delicate moment. Um, I think that's number two. The number three. Oh, God. Um, oh, there's so many bits. Is it monkey um, in a seatbelt? <laughs> <laughs> no, although, although I mean, like, who doesn't love a monkey in a seatbelt in, in, in any moment in life? Um, I, uh, third, like, it's hard to pick the third one because they're all kind of. I tell you what, I really there's a bit in there when he just like he's just a bit more monkey, which is like in, also in season one when it climbs up to go into the vent at Bolvanger mm. and it sort of acts like a monkey. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it was kind of like I, I really liked like all the bits that happen around there. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know, but I kind of love all of it really. Like, yeah. I don't know. I think like those those two are my favourites and everything else, like almost everything else is like number three. Fair. <laughs> uh, um, and then what was the next question? It's top three moments to have worked on, and they could well be those monkey mm. moments also. Uh, yes. <laughs> okay. So um uh directing Amir and Andrew Scott. Mm -hmm. nice. Uh because what a scene. it was not visual effects. Mm. Mm -hmm. And it was two really good actors and they did a good job and I sort of felt that 
I like that was a, that was a day when for me anyway they might feel totally differently but for me I felt like I could feel the impact of my input great yeah 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 right mm-hmm. I mean they're mm-hmm. both brilliant either way but I, I could feel like notes and things that I gave helped shape things a bit over time which was when I started going like oh, okay cool I feel like I've, I'm I'm sort of learning my sort of craft so that's one uh-huh. one um number two um favorite bits I worked on bear fight you know, yes. always a controversial a controversial scene for lots of people because it didn't have armor and he didn't get his jaw punched off. But that was really, in fact, and to be honest, Yorick <laughs> sequences in general, you know, like the and sort of I'd say bear fight and season one stuff together, um, and then um, being and shooting with Simone out in um, Spain, like she's like so awesome to work with, and that whole process was sort of lovely, and it was, the crew was amazing. Yeah, so that as well. What were your top three moments to have seen? on the screen that were like the most oh my god it's there <laughs> uh okay so first time we did the yorick scene in season one uh when he comes out of the chapel and that whole fight scene mm-hmm. that's number one number two a lot of them are going to be season one things because that's when it was like at its freshest if you know what i mean so yeah yorick coming yeah. out of the chapel um the benjamin die sequence which is when um uh, Mrs. Coulter fights with Benjamin and then the monkey because that was one of the first times that I really saw a whole scene and I saw all the demons properly working and I was like yeah we got this 100% we're fine you know um, that um, and then um, what else I really loved watching the edit of Pan versus Golden Monkey 2 in season 2 as a raw edit and seeing what a good job like between the editors and the director Leanne had done. Yeah. I thought like that, I really I remember that I that's a feeling of being like, this is an exciting moment. Like I really remember feeling like that was really exciting. So that's probably yeah. my top three. Strangely, not a lot of them in season three, but it's because you know, like you get the further away you get from something, the fonder you get of it. If you know what I mean, season three is very raw and fresh right now. So there are some really great top three moments of a really great season of TV. So five years or five and a half years of working on this has come to an end so we just want to say a massive thank you for all the hard work you put into it and for being such a good friend of the pod um, yeah, so it's, it, yeah. it's, it's, it's you know like it's just you know when you put loads of work into something it's lovely talking about it and you know i think you know i mean for me you know the experience of putting books that i really loved on screen and then getting them out in the world and then you know anybody that watches it who is a fan or not a fan like i'm hugely appreciative of those people anybody that has criticisms or not or questions or anything i think it's really really important because you know the books are important to a lot of people when you adapt you hit certain things and you miss certain things for different people in every kind of axis and all of the like almost any comment is valid um and i actually really love the like i love looking online and seeing all of the different kind of oh they must have not done it for this or they must have done that for that or i really love this change and you know all of those things i think are really kind of rewarding to sort of watch occurring after you make something so i'm very appreciative of like fans and uh and and you guys yeah, well we've loved it we've yeah we're not done yet because thankfully we've got the books to keep us going but yes <laughs> you've done it you've done a very good job of ending up behind on the books versus the tv show so you can just keep going yes. for like a... every time <laughs> this is we've reached the point again so we've just recorded an episode where uh we're now ahead of ourselves of where we are in the book so we now have sieve brains to contend with where we can't remember if it's like if it's accurate to the books not accurate to the books how faithful we think it's been because we don't know we can't remember anything <laughs> i love it or some kind of weird multi-dimensional problem you've put yourself into i like it it's good it's exciting 
Thank you so much, Russell. We, over the three seasons, we've really, really enjoyed talking to you. You've been one of our favorite people to speak to. It's just always been so great and you give us such good answers and you always ask for our opinions too which we really appreciate that's what you know that's the whole point of it isn't it i think you know like i said we make it we put it out there people watch it they have an opinion on it and that's the that's the thing that's really interesting you know how people absorb and take on what you're doing the same way people read the book and do the same thing i can't remember who it is that said it but when they you know they said like the weirdest thing these days you know is that you, you used to write a book you put it out in the world and then like that was it like you didn't get feedback and now there's sort of like there's a good side and a bad side to it because like you put the book out and now everyone's got an opinion and you hear it and they actually say it to you directly on the internet. Um, so there's sort of like a double-edged sword and a good side and a bad side. But I'm a real sort of like fan of you know like of hearing how people feel you know and 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 knowing you know when you ask me a question that means you've got an opinion. So I want to know why you're asking me the question. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, it's good. But no, we've always really appreciated all of your um, support for the pod over over the years. And it's always been really nice to speak to you. So thank you for being so uh, open to our many, many questions. And yeah, just being so kind when we've seen you. No, you guys are awesome. I'll I'll tell you a two second anecdote. I was on on a train on the way back to Cardiff, on the way back to London from Cardiff, having done, had a really, really hard day shooting. And I found your podcast when I was on the train, which is just before I messaged you from the train after listening to it. And I listened to the podcast and having had a really hard day, it kind of like lifted my spirits about doing the show because I, because it was kind of like, it was like listening to people outside of the show, having an opinion on it, but having an intelligent opinion and a passionate opinion about it that made me kind of go, I should message these guys and say they're doing a really good job. Do you know what I mean? Oh, you know, I remember. So nice. I do remember literally sitting on a train, listening to it, and going like, "I've got a message those guys because they've sort of like affected my day." So, oh, that's so lovely so, yeah. to hear. That's good. That's good. It was. I mean, it was very similar to us. We remember when we got that message, and I was like, "Rich, somebody from the show has messaged us. What? What is happening?" Because at the time, we <laughs> had not been a podcast for very long. By the time the show came out, I think in november around october november 2019 and we started the books in october so we'd not been around for any time at all before the show started so yeah we were like oh my god somebody from the show has listened to our podcast (laughs) yeah it was great yeah no it's good so you know the the appreciation is mutual so we've got to do now is you've got to finish the book that's going to take you like six more years um, then you've got to do all the other books. And then hopefully by then, Philip's written the last one. People have worked out what to do with the rights. And, we're, and, and I'm back making the next batch. Who knows? If that yes, happens. Literally. That, happens, that can... is what I was just going to say. I was like, fingers crossed we'll speak to you when we all get round to the books of Dust. I'll be like super, super grey, bald. <laughs> barely, barely able to string a sentence together, but it'll be fun. Cool. All right. Awesome. <laughs> Cheers, guys. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much, Russ. Thank you so much. <laughs> I'll see you all later. Oh, my God. Yes, Russell. Oh, thank you so much. Official friend of the pod, yes. Russell Dodgson. Absolutely. We love to hear from him. Also, thank you, Russell. He stuck around for as long as we had questions and until my laptop died because we did have some technical difficulties, mm-hmm. uh, which if we've done a, if Rachel's has done a smashing job with the edit, which I know she will, you won't even be able I'll to try. tell. <laughs> um, yes, we had a lot of technical difficulties during this interview and Russ was very patient with us and we appreciated that a lot. 
Absolutely. And he, yeah, like I said, he stuck around until we'd asked him every single question, which was way over the time that we'd like allotted with him. So thank you, Russell, for taking more of the time, uh, more of your precious, precious time. We really appreciate it. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I just, let's meet up for a pint, Russ. Let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Also, what was very exciting in that interview is that you got to hear about Russ doing less of the VFXing and more of the directing, which is a really exciting direction for him. And I'm so excited to see what he does next with it. So Absolutely. Yeah, good luck with that, Russ. Yes. Oh my God. Yes. Good luck. We will definitely watch it. Tell for us sure. what you direct next. <laughs> yes. Tell us. Tell us. Tell us. Yes. Amazing. We've got so much love for Russ and we hope that you guys enjoyed the interview as well. Yeah. Yes. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Her Dark Materials. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at HDMPod. And you can email us at herdarkmaterialspod at gmail.com. You can also visit our website at hdmpod.co.uk. If you want to support us, you can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash hdmpod. We also have a shop where you can buy merch featuring all original artwork from Rich. You can find it at hdmpod.co.uk forward slash shop. I'm Faye, and when I'm not talking to our pal Russ, you can find me talking about Paramore on my other podcast, Still Into You. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts and find us on Twitter and Instagram at Still Into You Pod. I'm Rachel, and when I'm not here chatting to you lovely folks about heartbreaking demons, I'm making cute and magical arty things. You can find me over on Instagram at RachMakes, on Twitter and TikTok at Rach underscore makes, and over on my online shop, RachMakes.co.uk. A huge thanks as always to Johnny Knott for his musical stylings, and an even bigger thank you to Russ for his patience and his time. And we'll see you soon, and don't forget, keep telling stories, and all will be well. Thanks so much. Bye.